Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Kids, this is Extra Risk, where we bring you just a little bit more of the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Broke for Free behind me now. Well, it is a tremendous honor to present the story that we're bringing you today. I first saw Martin Moran perform his solo show called The Tricky Part probably two years ago. It was such a release. I, did, I, I laughed so hard and then found myself just a puddle of tears by the end of it. It really is an evening of theater I'll remember for the rest of my life. And Martin also has a book called The Tricky Part. And what's interesting is that the book contains many significant elements that are not in the play... And the play, vice versa. And this version of the story that he shared with us has many elements that are in neither the play nor the book. So it just goes to show that, you know, stories evolve and you can approach them from different angles and tell them in different shapes and sizes and ways. Anyway, the book, The Tricky Part, is available on Amazon And Martin will debut a brand new solo show directed by Seth Barish at the Peter J. Sharp Theater here in New York. It will be called All the Rage. That's in January of 2013. Now let's give a listen to the story he shared with us. This is Martin Moran with a story he calls The Tricky Part. in our bodies, in our lives, in our memories is really fascinating. And in my 20s, I'm now going to be 52 shortly, 
in my 20s, there was a persistent anxiety, a terrible ache inside that bordered on a lot of suicidal feelings. Like, I just need out of here. I'm a piece of shit. I was in Salt Lake City, Utah, young actor, just so glad to have a freaking job, playing a make em laugh, make em laugh, lot out of the Donald O'Connor part in Singing in the Rain at the Pioneer Theater Company. You know, it's a job. It's like a real job. And I was 28 years old. And uh, I had been with my boyfriend for about three years. Well, so there I was in Salt Lake doing this crazy Donald O'Connor part, determined, because I was a gymnast when I was a little kid, to do the flips off the wall every night. One night, completely, my head just went screwy. And I came crashing down onto the stage and essentially broke my knee or ripped what's called the ACL, anterior cruciate ligament. You probably heard one of those. And uh, so I was in the hospital, cute little Mormon nurses. My life came to an absolute standstill. For a long time, and this is back in 1988, I was 28 years old, and it takes a long time for a, a knee to heal. So I went home, I was lying in bed, and I thought, hey, I've got to make this time productive somehow, with all this anxiety, lying in bed. And I decided, to, uh, an uncle of mine had said, you know, learn the part of Hamlet, or do something productive, you know, and I'm like, so I'm working on these monologues, to be or not to be, that is the question, doing all this. And I decided I'm going to copy every line of Hamlet's part onto a piece of paper and then a typewriter. And I'm doing this day after day just trying to quell the anxiety and be productive. And suddenly in the margins of the paper, my pen keeps sliding over and it goes, what happened when you were 12? Tell the truth. Blah, blah, blah. And then I'm back to Hamlet. And I'm thinking, what, was the, what, what is going on here? And then it was, you know, you were 12. There was a fence. There was a farm. There was a ranch. Tell the truth. And this scribbling kept happening in the margins of Hamlet. And that was the beginning of putting together this story that I realized only then at 28, 29 years old had its grip on my guts, you know, on my throat. So there was this, this, these images began coming. And I thought, 12, 12, what happened when you were 12? I had the dimmest awareness and I think about this now, you know, where does a story begin or how does a story begin? But this is a story, it's a story of memory and it's a story in some ways that, like many of our stories, I think is buried deep, partly because of shame. So from that day forward, I began keeping a little bit of a record and all the, and these images would come and they were, some of them were really fun. They were like, okay, I was 12, I was in Catholic school at Christ the King. And I loved Christ the King and I started sort of putting back together the images of being at Catholic school all those young years, you know, the, the clock and the crucifix on the wall and, the, and this one nun who I adored who played the guitar and she, you know, stopped me in the hallway one day and said, you know, I really, I think you might be musical, Marty, which now, of course, is code for yay, but then I didn't realize, <laughs> I didn't take it. I mean, I think she just saw a little bounce in my step or something. <laughs> and oddly, she made this suggestion that I find a way to earn some money to get a job. So I became a paper boy for the Denver Post. And life being so funny, I don't know, I was a paper boy and suddenly I met this neighborhood kid named George who had the other street in our little neighborhood delivering papers. And he was Catholic like I was, but he went to public school. One afternoon we were done delivering papers and we're hanging out by the Cherry Creek near my house and he had said, hey, do you remember that counselor that was up at the camp? Uh, this camp we always used to go to called Camp St. Malo in the summers, a Catholic boys camp. This really cool counselor named Bob. 
And I did remember the guy, and I thought, yeah, yeah, I, I remember him. And he says, well, he's fixing up this camp for, for boys, so come, come. He's, he's paying 10 bucks, come help, you know, fix it up. I remember he called it White Raven Ranch. And um, off we go, these two Catholic kids. And actually the first moment that I felt something odd was we stopped for gasoline on the way up to the mountains. And this guy, Bob, and he was really cool. You know, he's a big guy, flannel shirt, Levi's. So cool, we're going up to the Colorado Rockies. And he had an old lantern, a beautiful lantern that uh, he was restoring or he'd fixed or something, and, he, and it was very fragile. The lantern had been on the floor, and he said he had to get out to get gas, and he picked up the lantern off the floor, and he said, hey, will you keep this safe? And he took the lantern and put it between my legs and shoved it up against until it kind of hit my groin area. And, he, and there was this, this little smile, and he said, keep that safe for me, won't you? And it was just the, a split second, but it was the first second where I thought, oh, something is electric here, or something is different. Well, we're driving up. This is the first time I've seen this guy in like two years since I was at camp. We're driving up to the mountains, and we get there, and we do all these fantastic chores. We feed the horses, and we milk the cows, and it was it's like this ranch, ranch. It was so cool. He's pointing out the stars. Uh, you know, we're up in the Colorado Rockies. It's middle of April, and uh, we're, we had a snack for dinner, you know, made some pasta and stuff, and we're then walking across the meadow, to the cabin where we're going to stay and these incredible stars and we stopped and looked at the stars and we got to the cabin and uh, Bob was like fixing stuff in the basement in the, in the lower part and we were up in the loft George and I were talking and stuff and eventually George fell asleep and I was just lying there in the cabin uh, up in the loft and up comes this guy Bob and he, his head pops up over the floor and uh uh, he, it's just, it's, anyway, the, he lays down, he, he puts his sleeping bag next to mine, and uh, he's chatting, whispering, you know, George is asleep, eh, yeah, and I said, yeah, yeah, and we're lying there, and I, you know, who knows why or how anyone knows these things, but my heart is pounding, just, like, insanely, and in a way that's totally unspoken, in a weird way that your child body knows that something is happening, something that you know exists in the universe, this energy or something. He, he's lying next to me, and I know something is up. I, I, and for whatever reason, I didn't stop it. I didn't leave. I didn't, but I said, I'm curious. I'm terrified. I'm, he's reaching over, indeed, and he lifted me up and scooped me into his bag. So I'm lying there in his sleeping bag. It was so phenomenal. I mean, this huge body, this huge person, and I was laying next to him. I remember thinking it's like it's like being swallowed into a whole other planet or something. He was just so large, and the the feel of touch of, of of a body so much larger than yours, and it's it's like volcanic. It's so overwhelming, and. I didn't know anything about sex except what I'd read in the back of the scout book, something about waiting for a, a dream, you know, a, a nocturnal emission, they called it, <laughs> page 273. And um, this guy proceeded to, he was gentle. I mean, the violence of it is implicit, but he was gentle insofar as he didn't 
fuck me, but he put he put himself between my legs, with, put lotion between my legs, and proceeded to s- essentially have a kind of intercourse with me, which they call intercural intercourse, and he had an, an orgasm, and it's the first. I mean, all of this stuff is so. It's just so unknown. It's so terrifying, and so animal and wild. But the, here he was ejaculating on my legs, and we had just had a, a sermon. You know, we were getting we were getting uh, what they call uh, confirmed, which is sort of like the Jewish or Jewish bar mitzvah. This is like the Catholic one, and confirmation was coming up, and we'd had a big lecture, the guys, about the fact that we would have seed, the sacred seed of God inside our bodies, and that in each drop there were, this was this guy, Father Cotton Study, in each drop there are a thousand hopeful Catholics. I remember when this guy came on my legs, I, I was thinking, oh my God, there's a th- there's like thousands of Catholics. Like, li- I literally was looking down having this thought, they're drowning on my legs, you know? And I wanted to, you'd literally you want to say, you know, I'm sorry, I, I know this isn't, this is like really not right. This isn't what you expected. You know, my, my legs, this is so wrong. And then he proceeded to play with me, and I had my first orgasm. Absolutely just instantaneous. I was terrified. I thought I was going to pee or something, but it explode because I didn't know what else it could be. And I, I came, and basically... It was over. It was quiet. He was drifting off towards sleep. I'd crawled back into my own sleeping bag. And this sense of secrecy, this sense of absolutely, I will never in, the, in a million years, can never whisper this to a soul, ever say this out loud, ever tell this story. That Catholic world of Sister Christine and the guitar and of the... Saints and the Christ the King school, that Catholic world was a world where something like what I had just done meant the end of life. It meant damnation. It meant hell. And I felt that in every core of my body. And the sex went on for three years. On and off. I I found myself drawn back to being in the mountains, to being a friend with this guy who taught me so many things about being a rancher, being a hiker, rappelling down a mountain, all the, you know, that, that's that crazy thing where it's the, the relationship's a combination of so many negatives and so many positives at once. It's, it's like a very damaged adult and a very frightened child locked in mutual secrecy together and uh, a kind of very exploitive, manipulative, screwed up pleasure, sexual pleasure, sexual exploration. Uh, you know, it's undeniable that you're you're like you know part of it is just simply you're drawn to the you know the contact, the pleasure. The it's all so powerful. There was a part of me that felt like he was touching me into being. This is how I put it. I was, and I was dying to find out who I was. There was a part of me that was like, wow, this is the adult world. This is the big world opening itself up to me. And yet at the, at the very same moment, I thought, I am allowing this to happen. I'm complicit. You, don't, you know, you cannot understand that at 12 years old, your brain 
isn't capable of of consent, but you feel utter complicity. If you're in a Catholic context, as I was, that it's not just crime. We're talking, you know, devil and God. We're talking hell and heaven. And that in that instant, what I essentially felt was, I have just consorted with the devil. And I liked it. And I hated it. And I'm terrified of it. And I want more. And I've just made a bargain, a secret bargain with the devil. He knows how to touch me. And this is my secret. And it makes me more powerful. And I have a secret. Only later in life do you realize that you're nothing more but than an object to that older person. You know, they've, they're not really, obviously, they're not really seeing you for who you are. They're, you're a, an object. And that's precisely because they're not well. They're sick. But until I was 28 years old, lying in bed at home with a broken knee, it's as though I had buried all that had happened. And I'm lying in bed in my old bedroom back in Denver as a 28-year-old New Yorker then, but now home with a wounded knee, (laughs) having played Cosmo. This story began to emerge out of the place of shame where I had buried it. And slowly, slowly, I began to put the story together until the day where I can say it out loud now or write about it, which I've done a lot to try to make sense of it. I think we, you know, we write to make sense of things to find out what we think. But most surprising of all, even to me, was that I ended up one day finding his name in a phone book. And I was well into my 30s now, my late 30s. And just, I was home again back in Denver, and like my, this attack of memory, this attack of this story that felt, it feels so buried, slowly emerging. And there was his frickin' name in the phone book. And my heart pounding again, like I'm a 12-year-old, well, even though I'm like 38, I see the name, and I call the number, and his mother answers. And I ask for Bob. Is he still alive? I used to be a friend of his. And she said... She was very suspicious. She said, he's still alive, yeah. Um, I said, can you give me his phone number? She said, no, I don't think I can give you his phone number, but I can give you his address. It's the last known address I have for him. I'm not quite in touch with him at this time. But I, I, I thought about it for another couple of months, whatever, and one day I just wrote him a letter. I wrote a letter to this address. It was an April day. I was in Los Angeles. I'd gone there to visit my goddaughter, But I received a phone call, uh, a phone call from this guy, Bob, because I had written a letter saying, I may be traveling west, I think you're somewhere out in California. If you get this letter, call me. And he did. And I hadn't heard his voice in 30 years. I I didn't know anything about him, except that I had dug up this old address for him. And uh, this phone call came. I was driving down the 101. I just remember the, I, I, I stepped on the brake, this, this car behind me honking. You know, I was thinking, oh, my God. I pulled off the road, and I spoke with this guy, and we arranged to meet. And he was at the Veterans Hospital in Los Angeles. It was a Thursday morning, really sunny, beautiful day. And uh, I asked the nurse, if, you know, this guy, I'm looking for this guy, Bob. I gave his name. She pointed me to the second floor. And... 
all the while I'm thinking, you know, all the whole time I'm thinking, this is, what am I doing? This is just insane. I don't even know what, I had a little tape recorder I'd stuck in my pocket. Again, not even sure why, just wanting to record it, like to prove if I had to listen to it later that I'm this actually happening or that I could like maybe take the tape and blackmail him or something. I, I don't know, this guy who was, who had so wronged me many years ago. And I'm walking down the hallway and there are vets everywhere, these long-haired vets. It's this kind of uh, rehabilitation center. And sure enough, there was his name, and the door was open, and this guy was sitting in this bed, and he looked like somebody's grandmother. And I thought, this has got to be wrong. But I, and I gave a little knock on the door, and this guy was eating broccoli, and he turns, his face turns around, and he's blinking at me, and he says, are you Marty? And I said, yeah. And he said, gee, I never would have recognized you. And the second he was speaking, it was, I was seeing the 30-year-old guy that I knew as a counselor. But here was this plump, gray-haired, shaggy, gray-haired guy sitting in front of me. And there was another guy in the room. There was a roommate. So at first, I was feeling very careful about what to say. And then I was like, oh, I don't care. I'm just going to say, you know, look... Do you realize, you know, it's 30 years since we first actually met? And, you know, I, I live in New York now. And do you know what happened the 30 years ago? And, and uh, he's kind of looking at me, and I said, you know, I was 12. It was three months after my 12th birthday. You know, besides the, the hair on my head, I didn't know a thing, barely what a wet dream was. And that was it. He was just, he'd had part of his foot amputated. That's why he was there. But he just scooted across the bed, and he got into his wheelchair really quickly, and he just said, let's go outside, let's go outside. So we go in the elevator, we're very quiet, the other people, and we wheel ourselves under this sort of a palm tree, and sit on a bench, and we sit there under this palm tree in the California sunshine just talking to each other. It's really, when I think about it, it's very odd because I, the whole thing was oddly rational. I mean, I didn't explode, I didn't, but I, yeah, I didn't explode. There was just sort of this rational tone to the, to the meeting. And this conversation went back and forth. It was very reasoned in many ways. I think he was, he really did want to see me. And he, but right away he said, look, I read your letter you know, a dozen times to try and see. And I said, well, to see, try and see what? And he said, to, to see your state of mind because uh, I don't have much in life. And I, I'm wondering, you know, do you want to sue me? which really surprised me. And I said, no, I'm not, I'm not here for that. And he proceeded to say as best he could, he sort of just said, it was my fault. I, I, it's like, I can't explain it, but it was like I was the same age as you were. It's like I was a kid. And we went back and forth and talked. And, you know, he kept trying to, in some ways, which, you know, ugh, makes you want to strangle him, but he was trying to defend himself in a way without my even attacking him, but he just said, you know, he kept saying things like, there were lots of levels to what we shared. You know, you were a special kid, you were really curious, and I wanted to help you. And, you know, he was sort of d defensive in a way. And it, it, it's like there's something going on underneath that's underneath the words, you know, and I, and what was going on for me underneath was this guy is pathetic. And I, what do I need? Do I need to strangle him? Do I need to... Basically, what the most flat-out thing I said to him was, 
Do you realize how much you have affected my life? Here, I'm standing before you as a 42-year-old guy. I've done okay. You know, I live in New York. I've done okay. I have a partner. I, I I've, have a career. I'm okay. But do you realize how much psychic space you have taken up in my life? To try to get him to really acknowledge, and he just sort of nodded and nodded, and I said, you know, I... I was 12 years old. Do you get it? I was 12. And the closest he came to apologizing is when he said, he just said, I'm sorry you went through all of that. I'm sorry. And I was probably out there with him for, oh, an hour. He wanted to tell me about his life and his family. He'd had a daughter. He wanted to tell me about her. And eventually, uh, I just felt like, that's it, I'm just going to leave. And he said, oh, this was the wildest moment. He said, I hope, I hope you don't hate me. And without even thinking, I just looked at him. I said, look, what, I, I don't hate you. Whatever else there might have been, there was, you know, there was kindness, too. You were kind, and I, I don't hate you. And he looked as though somebody had hit him. He, he, he hunched over in his chair, and he said once when we were shopping... You were riding in the shopping cart, and you got a box of cereal off the shelf, and you said, let's get this, Dad. And there was this huge silence. I'm like, I really cannot believe that I said that. And he said, do you, he just asked me, do you remember that? And I said, no, I do not remember that. And then he said, maybe it was just a slip that you said, Dad, but it was one of the happiest moments of my life. I nearly fell through the floor. And something about it was so shocking and pathetic and heartbreaking. I just found myself reaching out and taking his shoulder. And I patted him on the shoulder. And he reached up and shook my hand. And uh, the last thing I said to him was, sometimes I wonder who I might be if I'd never met you. And he said, I can understand that. And I walked away. The ache became more concrete the more I began to really see what the violence was that happened. By acknowledging the violence and then, in a sense, really reimagining, remembering the story, there was, there was a way that, that then to be liberated from the damage, to, to say, you know what, this happened and I am okay. And if not even okay, I'm really a good person you know I'm not wrecked and ruined and uh, in some ways the story still goes on I think you're always making sense of those things but uh, it's tricky it's tricky
is all for this week, folks. Be sure and check back next week when we'll have a regular episode of Risk with multiple stories. This is Beirut behind me now. You know, I did a little bit of research on the subject of today's story and found that, although statistics are always something of controversy, a lot of researchers believe that the trends show child abuse cases on the wane for the past couple decades, and they attribute it to the fact that more and more victims of child abuse have come forth to share their stories. And that is news that truly warms my heart. Don't forget to uh, comment on us at iTunes. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. Uh, come visit us at risk-show.com. You can find out all about our monthly live shows in New York and Los Angeles. Uh, you can find our all-star episodes in our shop. You can go to the submissions page and pitch us your stories. And you can help to keep Risk running by clicking those little donation buttons on the right-hand side of the front page there. And finally, don't forget, we teach this stuff, too, at thestorystudio.org. Classes in person in New York City and online for anyone with a webcam. Because we believe that storytelling empowers the individual. So thank you so much for listening. Tell all your friends. And remember, folks, today is the day. Take a risk. <laughs>